podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Hello everyone and welcome to this, the latest edition of ESSR Feature here on the Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet Podcasting Network. I am your host, Stephen Wilson, and today, after a packed couple of weeks where we talked too much about WrestleMania, we're going to talk a different side of the wrestling industry today. Yes, we are going to be looking at the first two seasons of the hit documentary series, Dark Side of the Ring. Yes, not a point in the ring where you the Fiend's red light doesn't quite hit. No, it's a, it's a documentary series, if nobody's heard of it, looking at the size of wrestling that's not quite PC, and it's probably some of the best TV involving wrestling you'll see. And my panel and myself today will be going through some of our favourite episodes from the first two seasons of Dark Side of the Ring, ahead of season three coming out next month. Looking forward to that. We're going to briefly talk about that as well. But before we get on to talking about these episodes, usual bit of housekeeping here. Uh, if you've not already, hit the big subscribe button on the podcast network you're on, or any other podcast network if you like to use more than one, oddly. Uh, so it's Spotify, Anchor, all the good podcast sites. You can get all the great content we've got on there. All these ESSR feature shows on a Tuesday, ESSR Central on a Thursday where we look ahead or look back, sorry, on the week's worth of years, as well as Saturday Draft Live in East Meets West. Loads of great content. We're also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. And we're also on YouTube. Great content there. We've got Quiz Showdown. We've had the Book It Tournament, which is on there. Conspiracy Theory. Uh, if you can put up with David Campbell for a while. YouTube is a great place. If uh, the goat's not your cup of tea, I'd maybe recommend something else. Maybe a newspaper. He does, oh no, he's been in that a few times. You just can't get rid of that, boy. Uh, he's got to love hearing that intro. Big egotistical bugger that he is. Anyway, he's not on this show for anybody who doesn't like him. Uh, <laughs> but I do have a panel here. Uh, we're talking Dark Side of the Ring, and this man is very fond of the Dark Side of his room. As anybody who's watched our YouTube series will see that he is not very fond of the light. It is Scott McLeod. Uh, yeah, the one time we're not using the video that we're recording with, you can actually see me. And you can see the contempt I have for you, Stephen. I look that you're familiar with whenever you encounter people. Scott, I've not really encountered many people in the last year. I don't really know content. I still, in my head, I think everybody likes me because I've not really seen them tell me they hate me in that long. So, hey ho. Uh, uh, in a couple of months, though, it's going to hit me like a bang. Uh, speaking of that, this man also is And go Gary for you right now. He'll tell you how much he hates you. <laughs> I don't need to tell Gary. I can tell my next panellist who claims that when lockdown's finished, he's going to kick me up the arse or in the balls. Just simple as that. It's Grant McRobbie. <laughs> yes, I've already laid it quite clear. You are due multiple bootings of the boss. In my top five list, you've taken four or five spots with David Campbell claiming one of them himself. <laughs> oh, did I, did I knock the McLeods out? Oh, man. <laughs> Aye, they're doing oh, it six and seven. <laughs> <laughs> You were late for one East Meets West and he wasn't happy, so he bumped you up to three. <laughs> Excuse me, I have a life to deal with. I have a dog now. <laughs> you didn't back then. <laughs> Stop trying to promote a domestic here, Wilson, or I'll boot you in the buzz again. You're getting number five as well. <laughs> <sighs> Was Campbell on my five? 
I thought it may have been like I, two or something. And I was like one, no, three, no. four, five. No, no, it was uh, it was five. You had one through four. No one through oh, five. Damn it. <laughs> Clean sweep. Uh, also joining us today is a man who, unfortunately for him, has to deal with all this YouTube nonsense that we that we have all the time. Does it give him a medal? It is Daniel Campbell. Well, thank you very much for acknowledging the crap I have to deal with on the YouTube side of things. I mean, the goat's ridiculous demands are nonsensical sometimes. But you know what? I work with it because that just means more stuff for me. But, yep, I am delighted to be here to talk about this very... This br- brilliant album from Pink Floyd and... Hang on, sorry, what? What do you mean this isn't the album? You told me this, but... Okay, okay, sorry, so we're talking about a TV show then? <laughs> we are. We are indeed. Uh, anybody who wants to hear the, the Pink Floyd album, though, can listen to the the, 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 the sounds of ESSR after it's coming special. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is very clear improv is not Stephen Wilson's thing. Oh, I could not think of something there. I was like, ah, top of my head. Oh, man. Anyway. Please anyway, enjoy this soundtrack album from the sounds of ESSR. Our title track is Grant McRobbie's Fart from Quiz Showdown 8 Legends of Wrestling. <laughs> I forgot about that. Grant McRobbie's Fart? Grant McRobbie's Farts? <laughs> oh, yes, there were two. Remember seeing that whole thing with no one knowing about the look of contempt? Clearly you haven't looked at Laura in a while then. <laughs> anyway, let's go on to the subject. Let's talk about Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, Grant, since you're going to be so vocal here this evening, uh, could you kick us off with your first episode that you've chosen from season one and two of Dark Side of the Ring? Certainly. The the first episode I, I wanted to talk about was one that really I, I didn't know too much about it before I first watched Dark Side of the Ring, but... It got me fascinated with the character himself and his tragic end. It was the killing of Bruiser Brody. That episode was absolutely fantastic to watch. Just what a character, but also what a bastard the guy that killed him was and how he got away with it. Just putting it bluntly out there. It was mm-hmm. it was just something completely different. You know, it's it's one of those sort of you hear about Bruiser, Bruiser Brody, you know, some of the people that maybe are more old school wrestling fans are very familiar with him. For me, this was almost actually an introduction to him. I knew that he, he was dead. I knew about some of the old history, but that was about it. So getting to sort of see the story as to how it unfolded and people being there, it was just, it was absolutely fascinating to watch. And it was the first, even though it's not the first episode in the series, it was the first episode that I actually watched. Uh, and then got me absolutely hooked on watching as much as I could, which really made me sad that the season one was only six episodes. <laughs> I think it pops up. It's not the first episode they brought out, but I think it's the first one that pops up on all four for over here. So mm-hmm. I'm sure. So that's probably why it came up first. Now I'm sure it was like episode three or four in America. I was, and if I remember correctly, it was like kind of like the the, the one that had Mick Foley as your main narrator as well. And I think that yeah, gives it, that's, hmm. I think that's what gives these episodes that little bit extra is when you look at the talents that they actually interview and who's involved in all of it, you know, it's it gives it that extra bit of credibility compared to anything else. And it's it, it certainly it doesn't shy away from it as its name suggests, it does go to the dark side of things, as cheesy as it sounds. But they yeah, I mean I 
honestly, I just loved it. The fact you know you had interviews with, like Dutch Mantel, you had Tony Atlas, Abdullah the Butcher, and it gave that whole other side of things. And it was it was quite terrifying when you think about what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Scott Grant mentions uh, one of the names he mentions there. Tony Atlas is quite a prominent role in this documentary episode. Uh, he has a he was he was the one that took Bruiser Brody to the hospital. Literally took him to the hospital on his shoulders, pretty much. You know, big guy Bruiser Brody, a big guy Tony Atlas. But Tony Atlas's reaction and his frenzy to it is quite something to watch because he goes through all sorts of emotions during this forty minutes odd that this episode was on yeah it is uh, very nice that they get people to who really knew him very well like you had atlas you had zeb coater you had Adola butcher who they talked about the rivalry and the matches they two had and like the fact that tony atlas was there in the locker room and at the time as well as something quite harrowing and i'm finally getting to talk about it more openly than he's had to in, in years and you know, I think with Dark Side of the Ring, like this definitely does fit that like title, and I think the the producers of, of Dark Side of the Ring have talked about how it was one of the main stories they wanted to do before this is even decided as a series. It was they first wanted to just do a one-off documentary about Bruiser Brody, and then they covered more like stories that have been used over the series, and so also they developed it into these. I think if they could have helped that they what they would have had it as the first episode, because I think up until that point in the series, it's the darkest topic they covered at that point obviously they get much darker in season two yeah definitely and Daniel one of the things I found quite scary to think of at this one is when on the Tony Atlas when he takes Bruiser Brody at the hospital he's been stabbed and apparently according to Tony Atlas his intestines are coming out and that type of stuff it's a grim blooming uh, picture he paints on it but it takes him that long to be seen because common it was quite a common thing for people just to get stabbed in Puerto Rico which it must have been scary working the territories at that point in time to think this could this just happens like that and nothing else. It it doesn't paint the Puerto Rican wrestling territory from that time in a good light, much much to anyone's surprise, I don't think, really. But it was just harrowing hearing just how much they all wanted to make sure that Brody was okay because by all accounts, even though Bruiser Brody played this very, you know batshit crazy gimmick on TV and in the arena, he was, you know, an absolute gem to most people. And to know that this was happening for the circumstances that they go into in the episode, oh, it actually even freaks me out just even talking about it. Like, that's how bad it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, Grant, the thing about it as well is Atlas goes to the hospital, leaves Brody there, he gets his operation, he gets told he's stable enough I'm sure I can't remember exactly the words they put it on he goes back to the arena and the show's going on like nothing's happened you know this poor this legendary wrestler has been stabbed quite brutally apparently in the shower of a locker room before a show and the guy that did it is out wrestling in front of so many thousand people it's crazy this absolutely mental yeah when you look at like when they say about like obviously like he finds him like stabbed Gonzalez holding the knife Gonzalez trying to claim self-defence it actually showed kind of how dodgy the, the like the prosecution system was in Puerto Rico as well by the fact that he got acquitted of the murder. The prosecution witnesses apparently saying that they didn't get their summons until after the trial ended. It just reeked of absolute dodgy and it, it was an absolute tragedy. It shouldn't have happened, especially heavy traffic outdoors and a large crowd in the stadium. It, it took them so long to reach Brody as well. So 
something could have been avoided. I mean, you, you couldn't even imagine something like that happening these days. You know, as the Undertaker says, we're, we're not hardcore anymore because we don't carry guns and knives to locker rooms. Instead, we carry PlayStations and Xboxes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's, it's covered in this episode, but I believe there's a story that Brody uh, did a thing that you guys used to do back in the day where I think they took a lot of aspirin for matches if they were planning on cutting themselves or bleeding because it helped the blood like, be thinner when it ran. So that meant also they took longer to get to him. He apparently bled out quicker than he would have before then. So I said that, plus the fact that the medical team like couldn't get to him in time because of the graphic. Like, I think he was very much dead on arrival when they got into the hospital, which is a shame. And I think there's also stories that the, the promotion still put that guy as a baby face years after this, even, though, even when the story of him killing Brody became known. One... One worst promotional tactic, I'm sure, in the Observer that year. They literally a year later he was booked as a babyface after he, you know, done that, which is mental. And it is quite sad as well the fact that he's uh, he had his wife. He had to get buried, I think, in Puerto Rico. He had to get his funeral in Puerto Rico. I think his wife had issues trying to get him up back over, which is a shame. You know, just lost her husband, one kid, and she has to try and. Chuck him, get bring him back from one side of the world. It's it's a mental story, and it's a it's a real shame. But it's one of the horror stories. As Grant even said, it gets even. Or, or as the guy, or he's all said, really, it gets even darker from this, which I think mm-hmm. is crazy to think of. But yeah. I, it's unreal. I mean, like you just think, you know, like there's never really been quite anything like it since. Thank God for that, because let's face it, we don't really want the wrestlers going about. Uh, uh, you've been stiff with someone. Here's your receipt. Here's a stabbing. Nah, no, thank you, pal. Be a bit too far. <laughs> yeah, just a bit, just a bit. But that is uh, the death of Bruiser Brody. Horrible, horrible tragedy. And uh, obviously, he's one of the greats of the wrestling industry. You've seen this documentary. Star level was, was crazy at that particular point. But I'm going to go on now to Daniel. Uh, Daniel, can you talk about the first episode you like to talk about here? So, the first one that I'm going to bring up is another one of the season uh, one episodes. And it's one that even still now has not fully been answered yet. There's still a lot of mystery behind it, and it was worth them discussing in this one. And that was the mysterious death of gorgeous Gino Hernandez. So, for anyone maybe not familiar with his body of work... Uh, Gino Hernandez wrestled in WCCW, the precursor to what we knew as World Championship Wrestling. Uh, he was very much almost in the same line as, you know, kind of what Ric Flair and even Evolution era Triple H would be, you know, dressing up in smart suits. They were popular with the ladies. They were having all sorts of, like, brilliant heel tactics. And he, he was a very cocky, very flamboyant heel, but... It was a strange set of circumstances. So, uh, Hernandez was scheduled to work some shows around the weekend, around the time of February the 4th, 1986. But he no-showed them. No one had heard a thing from him. So, uh, the booker for WCCW at the time, David Manning, uh, went up to check on him. And that was when they found uh, Hernandez was dead. But... More to the point, Hernandez had at least been dead for about four days. So he'd been gone for a while already. Um, going into the episode, like, 
they, his death was ruled originally as an overdose because they found a lot of cocaine in the system. But there are many people who are of the belief that he was murdered. And his family now, in fact, his mum even says in the documentary, I know my son was killed. And it was just very, it was extremely dark because you see obviously how, sure, like when in that period of time back in the 80s and even the late 70s, most wrestlers would live their gimmick. You know, if that was how they appeared in the ring, they had to try and look like that outside of the ring. But with Gino, it it almost feels like from the episode, it just got too much for him. Because he was dabbling with drugs. Uh, he gave one of his managers acid at one point And had a cereal bowl with uh, a crap ton of cocaine in it. And that was just recreational for him. And he was... The people noted that he was just getting he was getting very fidgety and very nervous. He had something in his mum's house, which they she doesn't discuss what was in it. But it looked he was convinced that there was someone trying to kill him. He's he swore blind that when he was driving his car one day, somebody sat up in the back seat of the car and just sat there staring at him, waiting to kill him. But he was found dead and then the weirdest part was a drug dealer visited his mum and according to her he said Gino owed me a lot of money but don't you worry because I'll pay for his funeral and she felt very like hmm that uh, felt like a threat in her mind um, Bruce Pritchard said that when he went to the funeral there was several people who turned up that most people were looking around the room just going do you know who this is? Like we don't we don't recognize these people. Someone that half the room never even knew gave his eulogy, made some like analogies of wrestling. Uh, but there were it was just very a strange environment, and it was only after the funeral that people started thinking, okay, could it have been murder. You had people like Andre the Giant thinking he was shot in the head, which the autopsy revealed there was no head wound anywhere that would indicate that even though there was a gun found beside the bed. People actually thought his former tag team partner from the dynamic duo, Chris Adams, was the murderer because they two were involved in a storyline at that point. And the police, according to head booker David Manning, actually did interview Chris Adams, just to clarify. Uh, but this is the bit where it's, it's even uncomfortable even discussing this one as well. There were details on his autopsy that didn't match Gino. They said he was overweight when he wasn't. Uh, his wife even confirmed uh, that he was circumcised, yet the autopsy claimed he was not. It was just bits like this that was just like, mm, something feels like a cover-up almost at points. But uh, there's there's a lot of like belief that Gino was running with a bad crowd, including a drug dealer who... 30 years after this all happened came forward with information saying yeah Gino went with us and started selling drugs so potentially it's been factored into it but even to this day and even after the documentary aired we still don't know mm -hmm. yeah Grant it's a 
it's a crazy episode. I remember watching it back. It's like it seems like something you'd see in a soap opera, you know, all this type of stuff. Drugs running about, paranoia, people popping up in the back seats. It's surreal to actually think this is a true story. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just so outlandish in ways. And like like Daniel was saying about the whole the drug dealer, which, uh, if I remember correctly, the guy's name was John Royal. They'd said yeah, that John Hernandez had become, had become friends with him. And it, it, honestly, it sound, half of it sounds like it, you know, it wouldn't be out of place in like an episode of The Sun's Anarchy or something like that. But you also had other people like Brutus Beefcake rejecting the murder theory. And it's, it is it's a huge speculation point. And when you look at the guy's kind of record at the thing, he was a well decorated wrestler. But again, showing the sort of problems that a lot of them fall into back in that generation of drinking drugs. And it does seem very odd the circumstances to his death, like the deadlock not being on his door when apparently he was paranoid and kept it shut all the time. So it's, it is one of the more intriguing ones that probably will never get any real answers on because of how far ago it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Scott, an interesting point that Daniel brought up, which I thought was fascinating watching, watching back was the accusations that went towards Chris Adams, his tag team mm-hmm. partner. Who, they had this, feud that was so they tried to make it look so legitimate back at this point obviously the internet wasn't a big thing that Chris Adams walked about in a different country because he was in England at the time with an eye patch because he'd been blinded by Hernandez you know so it just it amazing the fact that, that people thought wrestling was so legitimate at that point in time that they thought this guy got back at him for getting his eye gouged by shooting him dead and he's in his apartment. Yeah, it's a mental the way like Kevin was back then. How much people believe that? Yeah, Chris Adams. Uh, I, I believe he, he's trained a number of people, and I think he even trained uh, Steve Austin as well. And like I think uh, WCCW, uh, I believe, was also run by the Von Erichs. And I think given that in the same series, we found out what happened with that family, and then hearing this guy who worked for them like died in the suits. I think the first season really showed you that. This promotion and this family who helped run it were bloody cursed. But I have to admit that uh, before Daniel mentioned he was going to do this one, I forgot uh, quite a bit about this episode because I remember looking at the lineup for the first season and this was the only one that stood in there. Like, I know nothing about this because I think I don't think a lot of people would have known the story before the episode happened. And yet, given the fact there's so many like questions about it, and I think the fact that this guy died so young is part of the reason why a lot of people before the documentary probably wouldn't have heard of him. Because it did seem like a lot of guys said that he could have been something. And, like, again, like, over the time he was living the gimmick, which then I think got him into that crowd of, like, the drugs and all that, that may have played a role in his death. Mm hmm. Uh, and God, there's a lot of big questions as well of him potentially faking his death as well, which would be an interesting. It's an interesting theory, given that what Daniel said about the autopsy, everything was so much different that maybe, you know, there was something he, he did get away with it. Maybe he is living some other life somewhere. Who never, we never know. I don't think we ever will know. The, the wrestling equivalent of the UK's very own canoe man. <laughs> For anyone that actually remembers that story in the news when it happened years ago, that was a that was an absolute belter. Could you, could you just imagine Hernandez is just living it up somewhere? It's like, <laughs> everyone thinks I'm deep. They made a documentary about it. Joke's on them. Aye, aye, Daniel, that would be something just like, 
him just sitting in some Caribbean island going, ah, I've seen episode six of Dark Side of the Ring and it was about me. Oh, sorry, it wasn't about me. It was about some guy that looked like me. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what they're talking about. I've just been living here in my canoe off the coast of California for the last wee while. <laughs> oh, <good> uh, <laughs> It's an amazing story. Like with Scott, it was the one episode of that early season I was like, I don't really know much about this guy. I'm quite curious to see about it because there's a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about here that we're like, ah, I knew a lot about it, but fascinating story, you know, mm. and it's incredible just what happened in the 80s. These two episode, first episodes really paint some picture of wrestling in the 80s. Oh, my God. The era that we saw the buff of WrestleMania and the big wrestling boom. But, yeah. It was acceptable in the 80s. Oh, it wasn't even acceptable then. <laughs> uh, anyway, we talk about some really dodgy stories to start off this show. I know Scott's got two really dodgy stories. <laughs> so, Scott, please enlighten us of what your first episode is. I didn't know that they well, did that. a Ross McLeod episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what well, a surprise episode have you announced that they, you think they've announced the full lineup for season 3 they've not announced the Ross one yet just going to drop it right at the end but, just wait for the Gary Callahan uh, episode and and I was going to go for the brothel episode as one of them but I thought that's a bit too on the nose with the whole Ross Conley Park gun back in the day but uh, I took two episodes from season 2 as part of this because I think I said before I think that really ramps up kind of the stories that you find out about and uh we start off season two with a two-parter that I think somebody else is going to mention later on in this episode. So, And then we follow that by hearing about the life of the guy I'm going to talk about, New Jack. Uh, I mentioned his episode first because his episode chronologically comes in the series before the other one I want to talk about. But like, I think if you're a fan of like hardcore wrestling on ECW, you'd know somewhat about New Jack and uh, the mass transit incident, which we get to hear new details about, and how New Jack avoided time in jail because uh, the guy who he attacked, uh, his father, hurled racial slurs at New Jack in the backstage area. And when Paul Heyman testified that this, he'd said this, uh, part of that, and the fact that the kid lied about his age helped New Jack avoid prison. Uh, but like, it's just not just the thing that you hear that New Jack's been involved in, the controversies that he's been involved in. It's when you see the interviews with New Jack himself, and how nonchalantly he shrugs some of these things off. And you know it also goes back to his, his childhood because he talks about his mum trying to leave her, his dad, his dad pulling knives on her or trying to shoot her in the leg when she tried to leave the house with him in tow. And then he even looked in the camera and says, like, you want to wonder why I get a bit, I go a bit crazy sometimes. So, like, you've got mass, mass transit. You've got the incident with the article called Hunter Red, which is even more talking given that it came at an indie show where they show you footage. There's barely any fucker there. There's literally, like, so many empty seats and that show, and he stabs the guy because the guy was rude to him uh, backstage, and he even says in the show, like, people, pe- he kept correcting people how many times he, ca- he stabbed him he went, I stabbed him nine times, I know, because I counted, and then the thing where he wrestled a 70-year-old wrestler called Gypsy Joe, who he just beat the shit out because the guy said, you know follow me, kid, I'll teach you a thing or two and also the fact that the guy knows sell these moves, and then he's beaten on the guy got even more intense because people were throwing racial slurs at him uh, in the audience, and he says at the time, if, I've, if I'd taken a second to think this guy's in his 70s, I probably would have stopped. But then there's also the fact that he tried to legit kill Vic Grimes by throwing him off a scaffolding. 
and XBW, which I believe is getting its own story, uh, episode, uh, XBW in season three. But because like in ECW, uh, living dangerously 2000, he and Vic Grimes go to this dive off this balcony, but Grimes kind of chickens out and James Jack basically like, we're going uh, on three. And basically because he resists and Grimes is a big guy, he basically lands on New Jack's head and New Jack hits a con, which caused a lot of injuries. And so the fact that Vic Grimes didn't visit him or call him in, in the two years since then, when they got to XBW and they're on the scaffolding, New Jack tasered him and tried to throw him off the the balcony, which he luckily managed to hit his leg off the ropes and spring back into him, which means the only thing he really got was uh, a dislocated ankle, whereas New Jack was trying to aim for the concrete and try and kill this guy. And, like, again, I said about how the way he talks about it. It's the nonchalant way he says it, whatever, he recounts what ha- what Grimes said to him before he threw him, where he says, like, I can't feel my legs because he teases him, goes, you're not going to need them, bombs away. And he says it in such a nonchalant way as he mimes throwing him off the scaffold and it's just like, Jesus Christ. Like, and the fact that he's just sitting there and he's just, going to just recounting it as if it's nothing. And you think, like, you've stabbed multiple people in the ring or tried to kill somebody and they're recounting it as if it's just another day to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daniel, one of the things is people talk about The Undertaker's 30 years career and his commitment to kayfabe. I think you, Jack, takes a commitment to kayfabe to a bit more of a level. I think it's fair to say. I think it's fair to say that New Jack um, popped the question to Kayfabe, married Kayfabe, stabbed the registrar, and chucked the buffet staff off of the scaffold. I think that's what's happened here with New Jack. <laughs> He's. I mean, hell, I'm actually even afraid to discuss New Jack for fear that he will track me down. <laughs> like. Like. This is. He's like one of those guys that nobody. Like. I, like. Put it this way. If we do a profile show on him, we'd have to start it with a disclaimer. Please don't kill us. <laughs> like... <laughs> no, Jack, if you're listening, I would like to live. So, um... You're a cool guy. We like you. And on that note, I'm going to run. <laughs> yes. What I found mental as well, Grant, is there's points in this ma- this episode where people, the other guys they talk to, he's portrayed as a part, he's quite a loving father. You know, it's something like, it's like a Batman thing to a new extreme. By day, loving father. By night, crazy motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you, you, you hear the stories, of like, like other people talk about it, it's like, yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a lovely guy. It's like, I, I, like, I, can, I can just imagine his son going to school listening to you. You batter me, my dad will batter your dad. In fact, he'll kill your dad. It like, <laughs> is pretty much the de- textbook definition of an actual psychopath. There is something absolutely terrifying, especially when you see the many times he's bladed and you look at his forehead and it just looks absolutely nasty. And, yeah, I mean, like Scott said, he tried killing Grimes. So he was aiming for the, like, some things he says he's aiming for the concrete, others say he was aiming for the turnbuckle. Either way, attempted murder, man. There's no other way to put it. There's no other way to label it. You know, I don't know why it just reminds me a little bit of Tiny Lister and, and Friday. What's that? <laughs> that, is, that is a perfect comparison, I, I think, for New Jack and the way that tonight. And it's the fact that the way people describe him and say how they don't know the difference between Jerome Young, which is his real name, and New Jack. Like they even say, I don't even think I've even met Jerome, I've only met New Jack and 
like weirdly, there's some of the things that he said, like the racially fueled promos and Smoky Mountain Wrestling, they show the footage of it. That's weirdly the most tame part of the episode when you really think about what comes next when they're talking about his tag partner, Mustafa, smoking pencil shavings and being legit out of his mind and trying to fight the police. Oh, smoking pencil shavings, what the hell? The only thing else he needs for that is, uh, was it RVD roll up papers? <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know things are a wee bit too far. RVD would not smoke pencil shavings. The new Jack is a different level. Uh, the new Jack actually has a Twitter. I've just decided to take a nose at it while we're on here talking about him. And one of his last tweets was, woke up this morning and I'm still a fucking legend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that sounds very iron chic. It sounds very iron chic like that Twitter. Honestly, it is, it is, it's like a pure insight into the absolute crazy mind that is New Jack's, where kayfabe is reality, and reality is kayfabe. I think if they go along with what Daniel said about us wanting to live, I think we will say nothing to deny uh, or dispute his statement that he is a legend. Yes, you are indeed a legend, yeah. Yep, he's probably the only guy that married kayfabe and has a prenup with it. Jeez. <laughs> The, the mass transit one was always the one I'd heard of years ago, and I thought, oh my god. But I think mass, the mass transit instance is a bit tame compared to the other two. That's something yeah. else. I think it's just the detail that I don't think we'd ever heard before about uh, about the trail and everything. And the way that the, the fact that he did just use like a tiny blade that most wrestlers use, he basically attached a six inch like blade to some stick and basically tried to slice the guy's forehead open. And like you feel weird about Devon, who's not interviewed in this documentary, but he is, because he was associated with WWE, but he was there, he's maybe part of that tag match, and they basically said to Devon, stay out of the ring, because this guy's the only thing was maybe he would just get beat up because he was taking somebody's place. But like, do I think what you're thinking, if you're Devon Dudley, you're watching this guy you're maybe team with, getting absolutely sliced up, and you're like, I could get in there and help him. But then again, that's New Jack, and he's got a six-inch blade, so maybe I won't get in there and... <laughs> the way he describes the trial as well, that there were like five white women and one eight-year-old black man who was sleeping. And as soon as he heard Paul Heyman recount the things that the kid's dad said to New Jack, he woke up and is like, New Jack's saying, like, I need this guy to wake up. He's my ticket out of here. <laughs> ah, an absolutely mental tale. Such a, the first half hour of this podcast, such a surreal Dark, dark story. I'm going to bring the tone up a wee bit slightly because uh, my first episode of Dark Side Ring I'm going to talk about is not as dark as it's probably one of the, is the least darkest episodes that they've done to date, but it's one that I think is great and I've always died to talk about. It. It's the episode regarding the Brawl for All tournament that took place in <laughs> 1998. Now, anybody not familiar with the Brawl for All tournament, essentially, it was a 16-man shoot tournament that took place in WWE in the summer of 1998. Shoot tournament and the fact that they tried decided, let's let... We've got all these guys in the back who are tough, or claim to be tough. Let's see who's legitimately the toughest. Let's do a UFC slash boxing style shoot fight between the guys who are not legitimate fighters. What could go wrong? Well, <laughs> apparently a lot goes wrong. As revealed in this particular episode, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of chitter-chatter that this tournament was merely just done as a, a way to push 
Dr. Death Steve Williams. And they also promised a lot of the guys in it that if you win this, you could get a push. You could be the one feuding with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Well, as Jim Ross says in this particular episode of Dark Side of the Ring, no one got over. Boy, no one got over. It's just an absolute fascinating insight into why this tournament took place. A lot of great chat. Vince Russo, apparently the brains behind this one, gets a five-minute standalone segment of this episode with Jim Cornette, where we really get to see how much these two hate each other, I think it's fair to say. Oh, it's like, it's a hard fight to try and choose a side with, the boot of Vince Russo, Jim Cornette one. But, that side of the ring, episode for Brawl for All. You feel... It's great you get to hear, you get some great chat from it, actual chat on the tournament. Bart Gunn, who wins the Brawl for All tournament, I think is fascinating in it, because you get to see how his thought process goes in it. And it's absolutely amazing. Uh, Grant, I'll start off and I'll talk to you about the actual formation of the Brawl for All tournament, because obviously Vince Russo is interviewed on this particular episode, and he explains the reasons why he decided to do this tournament. Not because he wanted to see who was really the toughest. No, because he wanted to see someone batter John Bradshaw Layfield. <laughs> I absolutely love the idea that it's pretty much, it's like, right, at least one of these 15 folk can batter him, surely. <laughs> like, the whole the whole concept, like, is just someone bragging about it, and he just pitched it, and, you know, like, as we say, Russo, Cornette, Cornette thought it was the most stupid thing ever, Russo thinks it's probably the greatest thing ever, because it's going to get Brad- Bradshaw battered. Honestly, it's like Alien V's Predator. It didn't matter who won that argument. We were all going to lose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could you got, Scott, what I mentioned, there's a lot of guys in it who did it on the premise that they were going to get a push. And then you got Charles, the Godfather, right? Who was like, <laughs> I do this every night. And recounted some, of, some, some great stories of him in this, around about this particular time where they, apparently him and his his hose at that point in time got went out smoking weed before his first round match with Dan Bloody Severin, one of the greatest UFC fighters of all time. And also his uh, side job where he would pimp slap pimps in his bar. Oh my God, mm. some of the stories of the Godfather. You'd love to sit down and have a chat with the Godfather and just mm-hmm. understand just what he's went through in his life. Oh, I mean, you want to talk about absolute legends? Charles Wright is an absolute legend. You see him. He, he, the fact that he like played a pimp and now he owns a, a gentleman's bar in Las Vegas, where I think Dealer Brown's been the bouncer for occasionally. Uh, and Dealer Brown said that occasionally in that bar, Owen will be up dancing and they'll play his old theme song as he's dancing. And like, it's good that you mentioned this this episode because I think it's one of the more lighthearted ones we actually think about. It's just the of an idea that ah, this went wrong because a couple of people got injured. Because, like, compared to everything else we talked about, it is, I know we really have a laugh and a joke on this podcast, but it's hard with some of the stuff we've talked about so far to keep this lighthearted. But this one, a lot of it you kind of already did know. I think it was, like, Jim Cornette and Russo going back and forth. Like, we all knew they hated each other. We all knew this was a bad idea. You know, Godfather talking about uh, smoking weed before his fights. The only thing that really was, like, official confirmation of something I didn't fully know is, like, the thing with Butterbean. And that Butterbean basically sits there and said, like, yeah, they told me he's like come in and be this guy's punishment because like you hear from the likes of uh, Bruce Pritchard or whatever they asked about it, they try and swear up and blindly, like, oh, we weren't trying to punish them or that. They thought it'd be a good way to help capitalise on the brawl for all like, no, you were annoyed because the guy you wanted to win, especially JR, 
what didn't they win? Because apparently they'd already paid Steve Williams the money that the winner was going to get anyway because they were that confident. So you had a predetermined winner in a shoot tournament. It just screams WWE. And uh, Daniel, the one guy who they talk about quite a lot about this is uh, Bart Gunn, the eventual winner. He, he's, he's very prominent throughout this episode. He talks about how his first round match was meant to have been drawn at random by Savio Vega, of all people. That's a strange one. You know, let's let's call Savio in to do this. Uh, and he gets drawn with his then tag team partner, Bob Hawley, in the first round. Then he goes into his second round match with Dr. Death Steve Williams. As Scott said, he's apparently already been paid to win this tournament. And he's getting absolutely jibs in the, by the guys in the back going, ah, you're never going to beat this guy. He's the hand-picked man. So Bart Gunn just goes, I'm just, I'm going to go out and try and beat lumps at him. And he does. And, you know, it's it's great to kind of see his side of things because I think we feel Bart Gunn, after he loses that match to Butterbean, just kind of fades away and you don't hear from him again. So it's great to actually see he was actually there trying to make a, a point, even though he probably knew he was, was going to come out bad at the end of it. I mean, yeah, like it's... It was one thing that they put him up against Bob Hawley in the first round, and most people don't want to go against Bob Hawley just in life. So it was already an achievement for him that he knocked him out. And then he ended up like being, I think they called him the most lethal left hook in the business because of just how he was able... All of a sudden he was knocking people out and he was advancing and everyone's like, the, the Marty Gennetti of the smoking guns is advancing. What is going on here? Like, what, like what's happening here? And it, the tournament was already strange enough just looking at the rest of the lineup because some of the names in the tournament, you like, why are they even there? Like Bradshaw, you know, I could get. But, in that tournament. Like, like Bradshaw. I mean, he like he was apparently the reason it was made. Uh, Steve Williams. They thought, well, he was a he's a tough guy. He can maybe benefit if he wins it. Just half of it was just very much, you know, I hate this guy. Let's humiliate him. But then at the same time, people were like, right, okay, that can't obviously be it. Like, what I think is. Russo knows what his intention was making the tournament. Everyone else was not privy to that and thought this was a legit try, a, a legit way to try and build up some talent. Hence why you get Pritchard being like, oh, we were going to try and help they could get a rub or a title push or something. That's probably what they get told about it. Whereas Russo's like, I know why I'm doing it. I'm going to humiliate that guy. Yeah, some, there's some weird choices in it. They mentioned some of the guys. Too cold Scorpio. You know, I don't know what the heck has... He got past the first round, which is crazy. But yeah, he has a weird one. The man who would go on to become PCO, you know, doing a shoot fight with one eye. Yeah, we talked about Not- that. I talked about that. That was so unfair. You had one you only had one good eye and that. You were put at a disadvantage and that. He's, I think he agreed about that. Oh, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Uh, we'll touch briefly again, though, on that point between Cornette and Russo, you know. A restraining order that gets put online that raises money for charity. These two are such weird guys. <laughs> they, they are like pretty much the, to me, like the, the poster example of they were good at a point in their time and have now become the worst things for wrestling in the modern day and they 
will do everything they can to mess to to complain about it. It's, it is honestly, it's like two children but bickering away at each other. My idea was better. And, well, no, it wasn't. Everyone got injured. Everyone almost bloody died. <laughs> but it, it was actually one of the episodes of which it bordered on comedy at points. It was just that surreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very, it was a completely different side of this of this series. It was a lot of stuff. I mean, Draws is there. Draws credit to Draws. He 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 was paralysed by the, uh, wrestling, but he seems like a he's still loving life, which is great to see. It was great to kind of see him in that aspect of it, and you know, but Bat Gun as well. I mean, he was like, ah, I could have. I got offered to fight Butterbean again and I asked for 12 weeks training and they told me no. I'm like, fair play to the boy. Fair play. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he did not want to get embarrassed again, you know. He did not want to be like, ah, I'm going to try and outbox this big guy who can who can throw absolute bombs, you know. But I've always... The Brawl for All tournament, I, could, I would... I class the Brawl for All tournament as the wrestling version of Batman and Robin. You know it sucks, but you love to watch it anyway. <laughs> I keep forgetting about the Butterbean fighting and I remember I think the only person that Butterbean's dropped quicker than Bart Gunn was Johnny Knoxville and Jackass. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I think the thing with this tournament made to who the toughest is, but like Dan Severn gets past the first round and then is randomly pulled for the tournament, which from it is, like, they didn't want to risk him getting knocked out like Steve Williams because like this guy was a USC champion and all that. And like for the similar reasons, they legitimately like they had Ken Shamrock on their roster, maybe the most dangerous man, and they purposely kept him out of this tournament for the same reasons of Dan Seren leaving and like to avoid what happened to to fucking Stephen. Can you imagine like somebody like Draws or Bart Gunn knocking out Ken Shamrock right before they're about to make Shamrock king of the ring? That would have been mental, you know. It's good to keep Shamrock. He knew about to stay away, but no, bro for all, you if you can find that. I'm sure you, if you Google it, you'll be able to find the full tournament without having to try and troll through the raw on the network. It's it's something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the extent of our light-hearted episodes, I think, guys, because we're going to go on to Grant again, and Grant really turns the lights off and brings the darkness, because this is an absolute deep episode that he's going to talk about here. We, we were yep. trying to draw that last discussion out, weren't we, just so we can keep on the lightheartedness for a little <laughs> bit longer. <laughs> No one wants to talk about the brawl for for really that long. I mean, no no one's ever brought so much darkness as David Campbell brought that absolutely shite darkness gimmick to the draft. (laughs) 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 Let us us never forget that, the darkness. No, let's never forget. The one that I want to discuss, probably still to this day, possibly the most divisive topic and divisive person in wrestling history because of what happened, Chris Benoit. That two-part episode narrated by Jericho really was, to me, heart-wrenching because Benoit was a favourite wrestler of mine back in the day and as much as people will hate me saying it because of what he'd done, he is still one of my favourite wrestlers because I look at what he'd done in the ring. Outside the ring, there is no excuse for what he'd done. The murder-suicide. But the episode was particularly hard-hitting, I thought, because, you know, the interviews with his, with his son David... Nancy Benoit's sister Sandra you had the likes of Chavo Guerrero Junior, Vicky Guerrero, Jim Ross Dean Malenko and it really shone an extra light on you could almost see the change when when he, when he lost Eddie 
how close him and Eddie Guerrero were. And let's face it, Eddie Guerrero's passing is probably one of the saddest that we've ever had in wrestling. It's it's an episode unlike any other. And I mean, let's face it, like a lot of what I'm saying here is stuff that every single wrestling fan in the modern day knows because we know that. Like when they put the big tribute on to him, they didn't know the actual circumstances of the murder suicide. And when it all came to light, and pretty much how Benoit has been erased from existence out of the WWE network, it is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really surreal episode to watch. Uh, Daniel, as Grant said, there was a lot of parts about this story we obviously knew because we kind of lived through it. We kind of seen what was unfolding in front of our eyes. But there was a lot of that the stuff that really took you and really hit you hard I think the great example that he mentioned was how Benoit took the death of Eddie Guerrero Now we obviously saw on that Eddie Guerrero tribute episode how much it affected him then but we didn't really get to see anything else other than that to, to kind of see that this was probably the point that really spiralled his life down the way it's quite heartbreaking it really was because you even look at how things were handled in the immediate aftermath the day of the funeral Benoit attends it and then gets on a flight to do the European tour rather than take time off which people did say to him like you know we can go home take time it's not a problem just look after yourself but instead he just went right back to work and then even in the later stages he he was given a diary to essentially write his feelings out but he wrote them addressed directly to Eddie as though like this was his way of communicating with Eddie which you know to some people of course that is going to be you know something that can maybe help for the first wee bit but it, the impression I got was it was something that almost became religious to him that this it was essentially had that communication with Eddie because he couldn't have it anymore in real life but it just I think really they like even to the point, I think someone should have even just stepped in and just said, look, we're taking you off TV, just go and relax. Like, don't come to work for a while, just look after yourself. And, I'll, and you know, part of me could sit here and be like, well, what would happen if they did do that for him? But there's really no point in even trying that now. But it's just, it's just heartbreaking to see how he, how he changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Scott, one thing about this, it does not paint the best picture in terms of how WWE handled this whole thing afterwards. Because obviously, they did they did the thing on TV where they made the tribute, and then obviously once the circumstances came out, they pulled it. But from what you hear in this documentary episode, didn't give the best amount of support to David Benoit, didn't give a lot of support to Benoit's, oh, no, Nancy's sister, sorry. Uh, the one guy, people who did was Chavo and Chris Jericho, so kind of not just people doing it off their own back to such an extent that how WWE handle it that they send poor good old JR to be the representative at the funeral and he gets his face bit off him you know for everything so it's a lot WWE for all they, they do do good stuff you know there is some examples of it but there's stuff like this you really think they could do so much better in how they handle these things yeah totally because you know, JR knew Benoit well after the years that they'd worked together in WWE because like, he was a big part of like, the, well, the talking heads and these the documentary people that know Chris in terms of wrestling. And so he also probably wanted to pay his respects, but knowing that he was going there as a company representative, I think he knew what he was, was in for. And I think if all the, the 
of all the topics covered on Dark Rain, it's good that this is the one that got the two-part treatment because it's difficult how to really handle this. Because if you just Google Chris Benoit, one of the first things that comes up is just a lot of stuff about this. And so if you're just from the outside looking in and you see all this story, you don't know a lot about Benoit. You see him as this guy who committed this awfully horrible act. But they'd use that whole first episode to explain what Chris was like, both as a person as a wrestler, and especially the detail they go into about Eddie and how that affected him. And like how little time he took off of wrestling when he should have took probably took some time off to grieve about it. And like how Nancy, I think, had been talking to him about maybe getting out of wrestling because maybe his contract was coming up soon and maybe just trying to step away from it. But I think it's a case we learned this that maybe wrestling is all Chris really had to focus on and the idea of that being taken away because like Jericho even tells the story that shows his mindset in the first part where he and Ben will have a match in Japan. Ben will, a little spot like goes wrong and said that you wouldn't, Jericho even said like you wouldn't notice it if you, unless you knew what the layout of the match was. So probably nobody in the crowd would notice it because we recovered from it. But Benoit was punishing himself backstage afterwards by doing like a thousand squats or something like that. Like nobody told him to do it. He just did that himself. And it shows the kind of minds that he was in. And like, it's also interesting in part two that Chris Nowinski, former Tough Enough contestant, was one of the guys examining Chris's brain afterwards, you know, because he's finally done all this research and concussions because he himself had a career ending injury due to concussions. Mm-hmm. Aye, Grant, I thought the Nowinski part of it was quite fascinating to see, you know, the, the detail that they went into checking, you know, his brain and that type of stuff. I thought that was a bit more of the fascinating side of this episode. It was, I mean, like, it's like, between the NFL wrestling that, like, the concussion discussion. I love that actual range, so that's good, I thought. But. The whole concussion chat and everything, like over the last several years, and like in the wake of Benoit, Daniel Bryan's injuries. Were, in fact, people were bringing that up when Daniel Bryan was starting to have his problem with concussions. That it was very similar to Benoit in the way that he done moves that he done and stuff like that. So there was those concerns. But look, it's what is it they say? His brain was like the equivalent of like an eighty-four-year-old Alzheimer's patient or something like that. It was like it was absolutely horrific. Um, enlarged heart as well it sounded like his body was broken beyond repair there was no warranty, there was no returning back from this, it sounds like the damage was already done long before and really who could have pinpointed when it could could it have ever been stopped or was he just always on this path of self destruction Mm -hmm. yeah it's an absolute crazy and it's probably one of the more heart wrenching episodes to actually watch in full and obviously, if you've not, if you've heard a lot about the story that Chris Benoit, and you don't know the full details other than what was reported to me loud. Give us a watch and kind of give a bit of an understanding to it. You, it is an absolutely fascinating bit of a watch, and it's a probably the if you had to pick an episode that we probably should cover more than we want to cover. I think the Benoit ones are one of the best examples of it. Uh, actually, there were probably two I would say that got that particular example. And Daniel, I believe that you will be talking about the other one. I think everybody would like to know a bit more information on. Yeah, so the the series like started covering one particular dark day for wrestling, and it then ended with probably to that point the darkest day period for wrestling, mostly because of the circumstances leading to it and the immediate aftermath of this. And this is 
the episode titled The Final Days of Owen Hart. So, like, you know, at most, like, pretty much the majority of wrestling fans will be aware of Owen Hart. They'll know the stuff he did. You know, fantastic wrestler, brilliant personality, brilliant charisma in the ring, absolute prankster backstage. You know, there, there's never, there's not a bad story about Owen, but this is the one. Ep- this is the one where it was just heartbreaking to even rewatch this. Even last night, I rewatched this and I found myself getting angry just watching it because it just. It just hurts that much that this happened. So, uh, Owen, you you look at Owen's career in WWE, like he always prioritized his family. Like the wrestling business is fun to him, but family mattered the most. They even said that during the Montreal screw job, he was telling Brett, honestly, don't worry about this. This isn't the end. You know, you've got more important things than this. But he prioritized his family so much so he was rejecting a storyline where they wanted him to have an affair with Deborah McMichael. He wasn't up for that. So they thought, okay, we have nothing for you, as JR put it, so we're just going to have him revive the Blue Blazer, which was a sort of jokey superhero gimmick that he had. It was like his parody of Sting, and at Survivor Series 98 they had him do a spot where he would descend from the rafters like Sting, but it would botch because he would be left swinging several feet above the, above the floor. Couldn't get down. Oh no, it's worked. He's directing him. Pull me back up. Pull me back up. I can't get away. You know, something funny like that. So they thought, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it again for a pay per view in May of nineteen ninety nine called Over the Edge. And the idea was that this company who had done it before it was I think perhaps the same company that they used for doing Sting's uh, descents to the ring. So. They had, the, they had the right equipment in there that can support a human body, particularly someone of his weight, which was 240 pounds. And uh, in the days leading up to it, uh, there were some red flags already. His wife received a call saying, um, uh, oh, we'd like to get Owen's measurements for the rigging. But you guys did it at Survivor Series. Oh, don't, don't worry, we'll have the top guys doing it. So, not a good start there already. And... Um, but basically what happened was uh, on the pay-per-view they cut to a promo video booking the match it was going to be Owen Hart as the Blue Blazer versus the Godfather for the IC title and as this is happening referee Jimmy Corderas is just making sure the ring's looking okay next thing uh, he feels the rope shake in his hand turns around and Owen has fallen from the rafters and the, you know, like the, there's blood in the ring. He's looking like he's turning colour already. Uh, medical officials, Jerry Lawler, they all tend to him. JR is left to try and fill time, essentially, saying, this is not your typical wrestling storyline. This is a very real situation right now. And they attempted to try and, you know, rather than do what most people would do, which is, just be like, right, okay, we can't avoid this. Let's just let everyone go home, call it. We can do these matches another night. No, the show continued, which is something we can probably discuss afterwards. Was it the right call? Was it not? Um, so a couple of matches later, in which everyone's visibly disturbed, like Jeff Jarrett was on the verge of tears doing a promo 
backstage, uh, JR had not been updated on anything. And JR revealed exactly what he got in his earpiece from producer Kevin Dunn. Oh, uh, he's dead. And you're back in 10, 9, 8. That was as much as he got to reveal it. So the show continued and the wrestlers were not happy. There were even reports that even, you know, some of McMahon's most ardent supporters like Stone Cold and Undertaker even protested it. Like, you know, it's bad if Taker's protesting it. Um, but Jim Cornette revealed as well the final words of Owen Hart were not him panicking. It was him trying to save Jimmy Corderas. His last words were, look out. And uh, it's horrible hearing it, but then they found out that the rigging setup that they used for him, uh, rather than the full clip that they used, which admittedly it will take a little bit of time to unclip him, but it's the safest way to do it, they wanted one that would release quicker. So they used one that was made for sailing boats, not for human bodies. Just because it was quicker and cheaper, they went with that, and it killed Owen. It's a, it's a horrible story, even, you know, 20, what, 22 years later, hearing back on it. Uh, Grant, it's a fascinating... Uh, not fascinating, but it's, it's crazy. It's, what's great about this episode is how much, you know, Owen Hart's wife and family, you know, how much access that they give to the documentary crew and the you know the the stories that they recap for this of this of their memory of this of the aftermath and that one it's horrifying to hear and you can kind of understand why she's you know so annoyed with WWE how she's very refused she refuses to let him go in the Hall of Fame it kind of makes sense when you watch this yeah I mean I'll be accept when I was young I this is this was a pay per view I was up to watch live we we bought it and. It's still in my mind, sort of like the, like suddenly stopping the broadcast with JR padding things out and being like, at that point, I, was, I wasn't I was even 10 years old yet. I didn't quite fully understand what was going on. So when the news came out, it was absolutely unreal. Like, like this, looking back at it, I'm like, they let that show continue. Um, and really, to me, it's like, it's just one of those times, like, you know, Vince was a bastard for that. As far as I'm concerned, there was no way that that should have that show should have continued. Like, and it's, I mean, testament to the guys that continue to put on the matches and give it their all. And uh, when you see about the reactions, like Godfather waiting in Gorilla, that sort of like Lawler coming back in white as a sheet, sort of saying he's dead. It just like there, it, it was at that point. It was the, probably the, the biggest tragedy to, have, to happen in wrestling by the fact that. We talk about earlier, like how Bruiser Brody's one was really sad that he he died. Like, obviously, that was in the locker room. This is where people could see it. This mm-hmm. was, and it was entirely avoidable right from the get go. The company they had been riggers for the likes of Disney and big productions and that. So, for that mistake to happen, that's just unacceptable. Yeah, totally. And Scott, another thing I found quite fascinating this episode is. When you found out how Owen was feeling in the days leading up to it, how he wasn't he feeling himself. He himself was not feeling very confident 
about the setup here, which if you were this guy's employee and this guy doesn't feel comfortable, surely you would just go, right, we'll either do it, we'll, we'll make it safer for you or we'll make you not doing it, you know, but the fact it goes ahead like that, you know, and the circumstances, you know, it's just, it's an incident that should never have happened. I think Owen only had another year or so left and they talk a lot about how Owen wanted to make as much money as he, as he could for his family and then get out of wrestling altogether. And so I don't think he wanted to roughly in fairness. I think he just wanted to go along with it. He did, also didn't want to do it. He clearly knew what the risks were going into it, which is why he was, especially his son, recounts what his dad was saying to him, like as he went with him to the airport before he left and everything. And yeah, talking about the show, I mean, like you hear stories from the guys who went out to wrestle afterwards and talking about how you know, so like, these guys were not putting any effort in because like, they couldn't think, focus on trying to entertain a crowd or put together a match like Billy Gunn talks about an interview he versus Road Dog was maybe the very next match. You know, this is the thing of a, a tag team you know, breaking up and having a match and like all the kind of like we just seen a guy like fall and then like the tribute show is one of the hardest things they've ever sit, had to sit through in terms of wrestling the tribute raw that they put on the next night where you have people crying, you got people like Triple H, Jeff Jarrett, everybody talking, Mick Foley. I mean the dog said the Undertaker was the one of the only people who didn't show up because he went up to Calgary to check on Brett. See if Brett was okay, because like Brett was like on a plane, I think, at the time when people were trying to get in touch with him to let him know what had happened to Owen. And I definitely think this was one of the episodes that they should have covered in the show. I get why it was the if Ben Watt, the Ben Watto part hadn't opened the series, I think we said it would have been uh, it closer. But I think this is another fitting way to close the scene because as soon as this was announced for the story, like a lot of people knew, like this was going to be intriguing because there's a lot of details we don't know about it, and like. I know a few years ago when Mark Henry went and he did this whole passing thing saying pleading to Owen's widow to let Owen be honoured in the Hall of Fame, but it's when you see her talking and his children and how they've set up this foundation and then you think, you know what, I think I think you can see it from their point of view. I think we should kind of stop this whole thing, like Owen for Hall of Fame every year. Let's just like move on with our lives with this thing. Like Just let them honour him his own way. I remember even Dark Side of the Ring and the Foundation or like some commemorative own heart t-shirts tying into Dark Side of the Ring with every, like, all the money made from the shirt going to the foundation. You think this is probably, it's up to the family how they want to on their own. Yeah, definitely. And Scotland, one tale that we do a lot of stuff about on the face of things, you're going to go into a tale that we only really started seeing a lot of details about probably about five or six years ago, I remember. Uh, quite a mm-hmm. disturbing potential tale from years gone by. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should have went with the New Jack second because I don't want this to be one of the last ones we talk about because we felt we've had Benoit, we've had Owen, and now we get to talk about Jimmy Snooker because I think a lot of people, and I mean, when they hear what information was available uh, at the time, like everybody seemed to immediately make up their minds that Jimmy was guilty, but then they hear about the stories about the case being reopened and the work these people who weren't looking into it and how they unveiled that Nancy is girlfriend's like autopsy report that hadn't been really publicly made aware of at that point you think if you think if you start to realize that if uh Snuka was able to stand trail even though like they said that because of his age and his dementia although he's not competent to stand trail you think if he hadn't passed away or had been deemed fit to send trail, like, 
he definitely would have went to jail for this because like the evidence seemed like it's like overwhelming. And it's like you talk about people's behavior, talk about like Benoit's weird behavior, like from people who knew him, like when you hear Nancy's sisters talk about their interactions with Snooker, like uh, when his sister said coming in sitting to dinner with them and being our usual self, the idea of Jimmy just reaching across, nearly grabbing her by the neck and going, I could, and giving her this very serious look. It like, what kind of goes through your mind that when someone's just talking, your main instinct is to try and grab them by thought and warn them that you could basically kill them with your bare hands. And there's also the fact that you hear the idea of like Jimmy coming out immediately when people are around him after Nancy's been put in the, the ambulance that, oh, like he, he keeps repeating one story about her falling, like they were wrestling in the room and she hit her head. And then immediately, like when the police are questioning him, he says, oh, we were stopping for gas, she slid and, and hit her head. And then you have one of his family members who up until that point had been defending him. Because of that outwardly, I'm like, no, I was in the car, she didn't, she didn't fall and, and hit her head. And the doctor report said, like, it, this, the damage is uh, due to her being, her moving head being hit with a stationary object and not by a simple fall. So immediately discredits uh, the change in Snooker's story. And you also see interviews with this guy who was like the chief of police in the, the town where it happened. You listen to the guy talk whenever he's confronted with the, the new evidence and the details. You think, like, it's no wonder this case was never fully closed. This guy is one of the most incompetent people I've ever listened to. Because he keeps saying, keeps oh, I, just, I trusted the other guys involved. And then there's always, always been this rumour about the, the secret meeting with Vincent going into a police uh, police station we have a briefcase and not coming out with that briefcase. Uh, and also, like, because like they said, the coroner said that they tried to do their best with the makeup for her because apparently she had this bruise around her neck and Snooker apparently shows up in shorts and flip-flops to her funeral or to her wake. And main thing she says, he says to the family is, she looks terrible. I don't even know what to say to that when I was watching. I still don't when I watched the episode back for this. It's a really strange tale. And uh, Grant, I, I, when I watched this back, I, you feel like there's in ways the way, you know, Snooker treats her in some ways. There's a lot of comparisons, I think, to what we saw in the first episode of the Dark Side it came out between the Macho Man and Russ Elizabeth and the way that, you know, Savage was quite controlling of Elizabeth, didn't let her go anywhere with the boys and that type of stuff. There's a lot of uh, aspects of that with this one. Oh, man, I think with the snooker stuff, it comes across as a lot more violent, aggressive, and abusive. Yeah, the the guy, like, the way, it's, the way it definitely sounds is that, you know, it was it was no secret that a lot of things were, were dodgy with him, but it just made him look even worse. Like, he sounded like a genuinely horrible person to be around. And he's... His behaviour, he just seemed to use it to bully everyone that was around him. It was it was completely despicable. And yeah, like Scott's saying, you know, let's face it, it's 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 almost to me certain bits of it mimic the OJ Simpson case. He knew he was guilty, but he got away with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If the glove yeah. fits, you must acquit. <laughs> yeah, that's very spot on in terms of that example there. Uh, Daniel, the thing Scott mentioned about, you know, the police officer who probably is more like the police officer from South Park in terms of his incompetence uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the aspects of Vince apparently with the briefcase and he was all handling it, you know it's it sounds so corporate America, you know a wee bit of money can handle everything 
And you know, not round about this time as well is the point where Jimmy Snooker was doing that memorable moment when he did the big splash from the cage. He was one of the most talked about stars in the wrestling industry. It's just like, it's just it's crazy fight. I mean, he's a pretty much cocaine fueled addiction, I think, as well, would have played a major part into how horrible a person he was in this relationship. It's the the drug taken will have fed into it. It will have induced something in his brain. Like he might have been okay before that, but then afterwards, certainly it will have changed something. Particularly about how he will have handled it. But with the that feeling, like you said, of like corporate America almost like protecting him. Like it's it's unfortunately still something that we see people you know dealing with right now. Like I mean. I mean, the only difference is nowadays it's pay people not to talk about golden showers. Nowadays it's, and back then it was, here's our prize commodity, you know, make sure, you know, he just did the big splash off the cage. Let's make sure that he's protected. Like, no, there is never an excuse for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you hear the story, like, when our sister tells that our mother got a phone call like, wherever the time detectives are talking to them and how they're going to rule the case uh, an accident and how, like, originally Buddy Rogers was, like, Jimmy's handler and, like, how he took him in the funeral basically holding on to him because he was so out of it. Basically, I think it was him or whoever was managing Jimmy at the time. He's just calling her, like, you think $25,000 would be enough for, like, basically trying to pay the family off, you know, so they're, like, looked after or whatever. Uh, also because they know that the circumstances are really quite sketchy. And the mother like slammed the phone down to say like you think my daughter's life worth that much and slams the the phone down like you take the idea like trying to just pay people off because they know the situation is quite sketchy and like yeah they put out the snooker because of commodity but like I think he was all they show he's a lot more of a commodity in the fallbacks in WWF era where as soon as Hogan's in and Snooker starts his drug use really ramps up they basically just toss Snooker aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a another crazy tale, and you you got to wonder what would have happened if these de- a lot of the more of these details had come to court long before the point where Jimmy Snooker was incapable of you know standing trial because you know obviously when it, most of this came out Jimmy Snooker passed away not long after it so it's crazy to think what might have happened you know but another another horrible tale uh, I'm going to end unfortunately I've not got as uplifting a topic as I had with Brawl for All you know. Never thought I'd have Brawl for All as a high point of a podcast. Maybe she maybe she has switched the order around probably should have ended on Brawl for All. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna end with the tale of Dino Bravo. Uh, a man who's portrayed in this pod not that podcast in this episode as essentially Canada's Hulk Hogan. He's the biggest star in Canada in the mid eighties at a point where he's high up and in the company, international wrestling, I believe the company's name was, he, who are at a point where they're losing a lot of their stars to the WWE, the WWF at the time, Vince was offering them a lot of high, a lot of big money. Initially, Bravo decides, nah, we're going to take on the WWE essentially. Something which then turns on its head a year later when he realises that's just not possible at this point with the money that Vince is paying these wrestlers. So he himself jumped ship to the WWF, uh, 
whilst he's not particularly happy with the character he's been portrayed as in the stereotypical I'm not American villain style forced to bleach blonde dye his hair to a point that burns his scalp uh, he is able to live a good lifestyle he is able to provide for his family live the life that they probably want to have lived but unfortunately his time in WWF comes to an end in the early 90s after five years with the company to a point now he's in his, late, in his early 40s it's hard for him to probably find another consistent gig that will pay that level so he then uses his contacts which we find out he's got contacts in the world of organised crime his uncle is a very well known gangster in Quebec Montreal at that particular point so he essentially becomes an enforcer for the mob who essentially are um, involved in illegally trading illegally trading cigarettes into Canada you know which becomes such a successful venture that it ends up getting the people who deal with cocaine involved. There's a big deal that Dino's involved in that doesn't go right. And then he's found, not long after that, dead in his own house. He's taking 18 shots to both the combined to the body and head. There's not overly ruled as a, you know, murder, but... There was similar deaths to similar criminals who had lived nearby in the area. The door, his door was unlocked, similar to what we heard earlier on about Gino Hernandez. His door was unlocked, and it looked as if he's essentially left let two guys into his house. And if you're involved in organised crime, you know, it's if you let somebody in your house, it's obviously going to be something like that, you know. So this is. The case is apparently still open, so this may be one that we could hear some more about. But Daniel, you know, Ted Hastings doesn't like bent coppers, and we're going to talk about a bent wrestler here who's involved in organised crime. Uh, Dino Bravo, what a tale this is. This is a crazy spiral in the space of a year, I think, from his ending in WWE. Yeah, like from what I'm seeing here, just from having a quick look, he. Uh, left WWF after a European tour in April of 92 and then was dead in March of 93 and it's horrific I mean it's not the first that we've talked about someone being involved in potential crime rings because there were as we mentioned earlier there were rumours potentially of Gino Hernandez being involved in some crime rings and with Bravo the involvement of like I believe it was cigarette smuggling was what he was involved in and it's, I mean, it's, it's the fact that this is, again, even still unsolved. This is something that they haven't been able to figure out what this is about. But you know it's bad when even, I believe Bret Hart even said that uh, Bravo told people that he knew his days were numbered. So he had that feeling that something was going to happen. But it's just... It's just horrific. I mean, what was it? It was 44 years old when he passed away and killed with these, like, what was it, eight, 17 or 18 gunshots. It's just, it's disturbing. Even even more than, like, it's, it's, I'd say almost, it's, it's almost as disturbing, maybe even not more disturbing than the Gino Hernandez one, 
because Gino, we, we still don't know what happened with him, but with Bravo, like, we know already it was that many gunshots. It's just horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Grant, you know, the Mountie, uh, very openly in this show, talks about a story where he, when he was a young guy, he got nearly gets in a fight in a bar and Gino pretty much sorts it because he was that intimidating a presence, you know. So partly he's links to the organised crime. They, these, they wanted him in, apparently, because, you know, if this guy shows up at your door, he's gonna, you're going to pay the money you owe them. So it's crazy that he just, that, that this is what his life turns into. But, you know, it's amazing the lengths you'll go to to provide for your family when you get used to that level of living that he obviously had when he was with the Fed. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was interesting points they kind of touched on in the, the episode, like the fact that he had that level of lifestyle that he didn't want to give up and he got involved in this. And when a mistake, they believe that one of the mistakes that happened was involving a $400,000 shipment of cocaine and a bust with the police. He, he made a mistake. Well, clearly you've made a mistake if you get 17 bullets shot at you. So that's what they said they found 17 casings a, a machine gun a handgun it's it is a proper gangland execution and it's one that is it's clearly someone was a little bit more than they were a little bit more than pissed off at him going into that level of violence on him but it's it's definitely one of those sort of like like on the wrong side of the tracks grew up the whole mafia involvement you know you know all the names that I was half expecting them to like say fat Tony was involved or something like that Just we, just it just came across like the Simpsons Mafia at points. It's like this, this is almost like the stereotypical example of it. Okay, officer, we'll dispose of this bag over here. <laughs> ah, I was gonna say that's the line I thought of initially. <laughs> we'll put this bag in a trash compactor. <laughs> I'm still thinking like like we said about you know being like the typical foreign heel. It just means like the wrestling of Futurama, like and his opponent, the foreigner. I'm not from here. I have my own customs. Look at my crazy passport. <laughs> that's, that's, what he, that's what the roster was basically made up of when he was wrestling. We say, we say this wasn't going to try and be light-hearted, but in this wee segment here, we've had a line of duty reference, we've had a Simpsons reference, and now there's a Futurama reference. <laughs> well, like, you need to find those little spots, bright spots where you can, because like, like, like Grant saying, like, you, you know he would be pissed they pissed them off with that many gunshots because like you know you've seen films or tv shows about organized favorite gangs like with executions you know the typical like shot to the back of the head but usually they don't always tend to do that many shots to the back of the head so you know there's like something bad to go wrong and i think it was the case like even though he wasn't a big player in the wbf he still played quite a lot and it's the idea of like there weren't many places for him to make that kind of money again so that's how he got into this and I remember, like, I was interested when this was made an episode of Dark Side because I remember a few years ago I was listening to a podcast where they were just going through entrance and whatever, like the 91 Rumble, and they mentioned Dino Bravo, and then they suddenly just offhand they mentioned, oh, did you hear the story about how he died and killed by the mafia? He was selling cigarettes. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like, and then the podcast, they just move on. I'm like, I'm sorry, I need more information about this. So, like, you can't just randomly say a wrestler has just been killed by the mafia. No, it's perfectly because, like, Stereotypes about Canada being so friendly, they you know Canada had a mafia, and so it was good that you have information of this because, like, while it's sad that 
we still don't know who like the, the case isn't really closed. At least on like the Gino Hernandez one, like there is actual information, more more information is really like well the thing with Gino we said about the gun being there but no gunshot, whereas we know like the method of how Gino was how Dino was murdered. I know. It's some fascinating tales, if anything, and if not tragic in a way. That we've kept them. We talked about eight episodes there. There's 16 episodes in total that's been brought out on Dark Side of the Ring on the likes of the fabulous Muller, the Von Eriks, the Montreal Screwjob. There's lots of stuff in there. I definitely recommend going back and watching the ones, both that we've talked about, if you've got a bit of interest in Andy's other ones. They're all on all four for the UK, you know. So if you are listening from the UK, get them on there. Such easy content. You have to go through the annoying adverts that they put in, but hey ho, it's the price we play. Because coming up soon, we are getting season three of Dark Side of the Ring. It's coming out next month. And from the trailer, there's some interesting episodes that we're going to be seeing coming up in season three. There's going to be an episode dedicated to the Ultimate Warrior, as well as Brian Pillman, Bruiser Bedlam, Chris Canyon. We've also got episodes on XPW, as was mentioned, the Dynamite Kid, the Smith family, so that's Grizzly Smith and his children, Drake Roberts, Sam Houston, and Rockin' Robin. Uh, Nick Gage has got an episode. Nick, uh, David Arquette's going to be in that one, so that'll be an interesting one. MDK got- all day. <laughs> <laughs> We've got FMW in Japan, the plane ride from hell, and I can't believe I'm saying this, the WCW U Japan event in North Korea. Ah, oh. guys, quickly I'll go around you all briefly. Give me one episode from this season three lineup that takes your fancy. Scott, I'll start with you. It's not this one, but I just want to say I suggested Plain Ride from Hell as the one I wanted to see in an episode Central a month or so ago. But Collision Korea is probably the one I'm looking forward to. You know, you got you showed a wee clip in the trailer of Eric Bischoff talking about it and like. I need to know more about this because, like, you can't. It's hard to find footage of this anywhere. There's not. It's one of the few big shows of its kind not on the network. I need to know more about this. Yeah, uh, Grant, what about you? Nick Gage. Uh, that, that one's going to absolutely fascinate me, especially since compared to a lot of episodes, and that it is someone who is still actively wrestling to this day and is still having a big impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Daniel, what about you? Uh, I'd say to learn a bit more about Brian Pillman would be uh, interesting to see about. Also, it is the episode that will kick off the season, so it'll be the first one we get our hands on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating stuff in there. Uh, I'm quite intrigued by the Chris Canyon one, personally. Uh, mm-hmm. that's a, there's a lot of stories about how the last few years of Chris Canyon's life kind of spiralled out of control, so it'll be interesting to kind of see that one. Uh, the plane ride from hell, of course, absolutely. You know, everybody wants to know exactly what went on in that plane. We've heard all the stories I've been going about for about 20 years now. We're going to get the official stuff. We're going to find out who exactly Vince wrestled yeah. on the plane in a lot more detail. Yeah, the Grizzly Smith one, I think it's going to be a really rough one to watch because, like, you just hear Jake Rose. There's a small part you've seen beyond the map where he just details uh, stuff about his background and, like, uh, how he's, what, uh, somebody his family died and, like, just from watching that, you know, like, like Jesus, this, this one about Grizzly Smith is going to be a, a very difficult one to watch. Yeah. One thing I would say about the Dark Side of the Ring episodes, they are quite, obviously, they're grim, tragic subjects, but 
it's a lot. It's a fascinating watch. It's never one of them to kind of find the ins and outs of the detail. If you are a wrestling fan, you have heard a lot of these stories. They are fascinating. And even if you're not a wrestling fan, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of see just exactly what goes on and get a bit of digging into. If you're into crime, watch mm-hmm. Dark Side of the Ring. You know, don't it? You might have no interest in professional wrestling, but if you like a bit of murder trivia or murder mystery, you know, Dark Side of the Ring. There's something. Uh, you might enjoy the brawl for all. As well, as a bonus. Uh, you may also hate John Bradshaw Layfield. Here it is. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, again, a fascinating show. And not much more I can say about it. But that has been us on this particular episode of ESSR Feature. Again, if you've enjoyed this particular show, and this is the first time you have listened to us, then please subscribe to us. Because we are on all good podcasting sites. And we've got a massive back catalogue of content that we do all the time here on the podcast. For this particular features, you know, we've had lots of great shows in the last year or so. Stuff on WrestleMania, stuff on wrestlers such as Ed's, a history of uh, takeovers, you know, Legion of Doom shows, so much on that one. Uh, last week, we did an episode on China, uh, hosted by Chris Murray, a very great deep dive into that. And next week, we're going to be looking at Scottish wrestling imports, a bit of a different change of pace as well. So, that should be some interesting listens. Uh, we've also got ESSR Central, as I said, every Thursday, the kickoff at the show, we talk about all the news. We've got Saturday Draft Live, where our team do their fantasy wrestling league. Uh, it's always tense. It's always full of outlandish claims, it's fair to say. One show that's not got full of outlandish claims is Grant and Scott's East Meets West, uh, where they talk about all the things going on in New Japan. They always have bumper episodes. I think every time I have the guys on, they go, yes, we have a bumper episode coming up. Yes, we have a bumper episode because that company just chucks stuff at you like it's nothing else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we're, we're fair, I don't know when it, when it's coming out because like, we had a big show at the start of the month and we've got, we're in the middle of a tournament and our US show. So we're trying to find a midpoint in that tournament to discuss everything and try and find one of those bit rare times where we do a show, Fury's they release it, but by the time we release it, they've announced a whole bunch of other stuff that we could have talked about and you don't have to wait longer to talk about. They love but, I am very, but I am very excited to talk about the custody of Iron Fingers in the ladder match. That one will be something to look forward to in the next episode, people. Don't clarification on that. Listen to the episode, otherwise we're not going to tell you. <laughs> yes, don't give it away. Listen to it. Uh, Loads of great stuff. We put everything out on our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. We've also got lots of great YouTube content, which our own Daniel here uh, puts together. Uh, quiz showdown, Daniel. Uh, mm-hmm. This is obviously the second last week of April. This is this show's release, so when we get something else on that, is it out or is it going to be out? Uh, well, we're aiming to release this for the last weekend, last full weekend in April, so the quiz showdown we're going to be getting Sarah Grieve will be in the host chair and it is going to be quiz showdown 10 paper, snow, a ghost and that will be our final stop before we move on to next month which is, and I can't believe I'm even saying this the one year anniversary of quiz showdown so that will be that will be an interesting one I'll be chairing that one and it's going to be quiz showdown 11, we've come a long way <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So much, so much in there. You know, there was the Book It tournament. It's been a while. I won it. Ha ha! And your face, Hawkney. Uh, <laughs> lots of stuff on that on our YouTube channel. 
I already told David that he deserved to lose on this past week's Saturday draft live for picking Aaron Colby Jackson Baker. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, but that's everything from this particular episode. I'd like to thank my panel first. Uh, Daniel, thank you. Thank you. And I would like to thank the world for existing. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Uh, to Grant, thank you. Thanks for having me and didn't get too comfortable at book it when I gave you the hardest challenge and I'm pretty sure I could come back for it. Rematch, rematch, rematch. David's got the matches getting booked, so speak to the big egotistical man himself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And to Scott, thank you. I'm I'm happy to have been here and not better that I got better in the first round. No, you're better. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have been Scott. It was him that did it. (laughs) Anyway, I've been Stephen Wilson, and we'll see you next time. There now follows an enthusiastic advertisement for Quiz Showdown. Hello guys, welcome to Quiz Showdown. I'm Daniel Campbell, and in this show you're going to see the members of the Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet team go through a very strange quiz. We don't know what the heck's going on with it, but you're going to have to watch to find out. Go check out on the YouTube channel now. That was an enthusiastic advert for Quiz Showdown. Podcast Network.